Well, by way of introduction, let me ask kind of a fun question here, uh, and you, you can shout out your response. Uh, what is your opinion of Tom Brady's career? <laughs> this is New England. You might as well go for it. I was expecting this. He's a traitor. <laughs> He's a traitor. Yep, yep. Uh, yep. Who does not cheer for Tom Brady anymore now that he's, there's one, there's two, three. All right, there's, there's a couple. All right, there'll be a support group for you in the prayer meeting room uh, after the service. Okay, anybody else? Uh, ideas about his career? Opinions? Incredible. Incredible. He's, he's an exemplary human being that just happens to be a great football player. Okay, great football player. Yep. I, I didn't hear that. Complete geek? Deflate gate. Oh, deflate gate. Okay, so the, the, there's an asterisk by his name. Okay, sure. Man, this is a tough group. I was going to ask, what do you think about me? But not, not anymore. All right. Uh, yeah, so Tom Brady's career, there's a lot of opinions about it. And, uh, and if you were to say that he's a complete failure, okay, um, well, let me back this up. We had a fun conversation in the car the other day talking about when you read the Bible, and especially this passage here, it just feels like there are some things that you are missing that you would get if you were around back then. And I was trying to tell it to my kids a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, it's like the word goat. When we say Tom Brady's the goat, can you imagine being from a different part of the world, Africa, China, and you, you overhear, you're learning English, and you jump into a conversation, it happens to be a Sunday, you, you come to school in Boston, and everyone's saying, oh yeah, Tom Brady's the GOAT, and you walk into that, and you're like, you know, uh, they must mean something different than what I have learned is the definition of a GOAT. And they have to say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you're from South Africa. Goat means greatest of all time. This passage kind of feels a little bit like that. When he says, you know, where I'm going, you can't go. And the people go, is he going to go kill himself? And you're kind of going, what is it that I'm missing? Okay, now we're going to get there, hopefully. All right, but this whole idea of Tom Brady and what's your opinion of him, is he the greatest of all time? If you were to think that he is an absolute failure after winning that number of Super Bowls, I think that it would prove that you don't really know anything about anything and that most likely you're a Philadelphia's Eagles fan, okay? I mean, <laughs> that, that's probably what you prove, okay? Or a New York Giants fan. That, that's probably where you're... And there's hope for you. We hired Michael Foose. He's from Philadelphia, you know, I mean... Yeah, he's an Eagles fan, and uh, it's okay. There's God's grace there. All right, just kind of laughing about that for a second. Now, your opinion about Tom Brady doesn't really matter as much to you, but this next question is a sermon title. What is your opinion of Jesus? And maybe even a tougher question is, how do you actually form an opinion about Jesus? By what standard do you use to actually arrive at an opinion of Jesus? It's really difficult to reach a verdict. And I have a ton of sympathy for the people of Jesus' day who had to make a verdict about Jesus in real time. I told my wife while we were away on sabbatical, you know, if I was around in Jesus' day and I was watching him and hearing what he had to say and what he had to do, I don't know if I would believe. It just happened so fast. And what grace it is that today we have all of God's word to chew on, to meditate on, and to see it. But it must have been hard for them to really make an accurate assessment of him. And unfortunately, many people do not make a right judgment. Instead, they judge Jesus by appearances. His pomp and circumstance, his public approval rating, his legal observances to the law. You, you could kind of classify that today in age of, of how did he get along with the cultural norms of the day. He didn't do well there. 
And because of that, people rejected him. Now today, we get to slow it down. You can investigate Jesus more thoroughly. There's the whole Bible to read put together for you. There's podcasts to listen to and books to read, all that good stuff. But we can still fall into the same trap of judging Jesus and even Christians by their appearances. Today, we judge Jesus and his followers by appearances, especially in how they fit into the cultural norms. Right? I mean, friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ and your mind isn't quite made up yet, we are glad that you're here. We're actually here for you. It's part of it. And even though you don't maybe have your mind made up on who Jesus is, I'm sure you probably come here with your mind made up on a couple other cultural norms of the day. You might be sitting there saying, Josh, I already know what I believe about sex. I already know what I believe about my desires and my needs. I already know what I believe about men and women and gender. I already know what I believe about tolerance. I already know what I believe about social justice. And the temptation is to think that if Jesus doesn't fit into what I believe about those things, then I'm out of here. We kind of already have those pieces filled in, and we're looking for Jesus to kind of already fit into what we already believe, or else we're gone. So let me ask you this question kind of just directly. It's the question of the sermon. I think it's the question of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Is your prejudice and your assumptions, are they getting in the way of seeing the truth about who Jesus is that is staring at you right in the face? Now, I'm sure if you're here this morning, you probably already have this built-in belief that your unbelief is rational, that your unbelief is reasonable, you probably think that your unbelief is neutral. You know, since the Enlightenment, we all esteem our ability to reason. Reason is that one thing left that's going to help us break free from all of that dogmatic, superstitious faith stuff that oppresses people. But what if your unbelief isn't objective? What if your unbelief is biased? What if your unbelief is actually blind prejudice? How would you know? What would you do? What I love about the gospel is that it invites us into the story. And so all you have to do is kind of put yourself into the sandals of these first century Jews. And we're in John 8, and it falls into this section of John 7 through 10, which contains for us one of the most long, sustained examinations of what is unbelief in all of the Bible. The question running through 7 through 10 is really this question. What makes the human heart so resistant to Jesus? What makes the human heart so resistant to Jesus? Why are people so opposed to Jesus? Why would people at the end of chapter 8 be so opposed to Jesus that they would rather murder him than admit their need of him? Well, it's a question that's intensely significant for us. We have to understand unbelief. Because John's whole gospel is written so that you would believe. He says that in John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But people vigorously oppose Jesus, then and today. 
And John adds this account here in chapter 8 to expose the blindness of unbelief. That's the point of the sermon. John is exposing the blindness of unbelief. John thinks it's going to actually help you believe if you see the light of the world exposing the blindness of unbelief. Because unbelief isn't just the absence of something. Unbelief is actually the presence of something. Unbelief is not just the absence of faith due to a lack of evidence. There's actually something there that makes you want to resist the evidence. Silence the evidence. Swallow the evidence and convince yourself that it's not good enough. Well, in order to get to see what that something is, we're going to have to look at the context, the claim, the challenge, the consequence, before finally we get to the cure. We're going to move through quickly, okay? That's the outline, the context, the claim, the challenge, the consequence, the cure. If you're here last week, the context is that Jesus is making a trip to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths. Many religious pilgrims were there. And if you think about it in terms of number of people, think post-Super Bowl parade or royal wedding. Okay, that's how big we're talking, all right? And if John 8, 1 through 11 isn't there, then John chapter 8, verse 12 follows immediately on John chapter 7. Do you get that? If 1 through 8 is removed then 8.12 is really 8.1, and 7 and 8 are squished together. And we already heard last week that Jesus claims in John 7, verses 37 and 38, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Both images, water and light, are symbolic. And they were a part of the festival themselves, right? In the Feast of Booze, there were two great ceremonies. One ceremony was pouring out this water before the Lord. And the other ceremony was lighting these huge lamps in that temple courtyard in which all of Jerusalem on a hill would be lit up and glowing. Now, both of these acts of both lighting all the candles and pouring out the water were symbolic, right? They looked back to the time where God led Israel in the wilderness and he brought water out of a rock and he led them by night in this pillar of fire. So it was to look back, but it also was to look forward. Just hear this reference, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. This is looking forward. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That's what the ceremonies were looking forward to. So when Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and says, If anyone will, is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and I am the light of the world, no Jew could misunderstand what he is claiming. Jesus is claiming to be the very revelation of God, the one who will inaugurate the great day of the Lord, a day in which there will be unending light 
and therefore a day of unending life. That's a claim. It's a momentous claim. It's a stupendous claim. I think if you've been a Christian here for a while, you might even lose sight of just how big of a claim Jesus is making. But notice again here. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me. Can we just be honest for a second? It's pretty egocentric. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me. You could go through in your Bible time later this afternoon and circle all of the personal pronouns, I and me, in this section and just see how much Jesus is talking about himself. He is claiming the very name of God, the name of God that was revealed to Moses. He is claiming to be the great I am. And he takes all of that and he makes it all about himself. Notice Jesus is not a light for a small sect, a limited geographic region. He says, I am the light of the the world, right? I am the light of every man and woman who has ever lived. It is of universal relevance. He says, whoever universal follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As Israel was led in the wilderness by a light, Jesus now is promising to his followers that if you follow him, you will be led into unending life because I am the unending light. Light for life. Eternal light for eternal life. And it's not for those that admire the light. It is for those that follow this light, just like Israel had to follow the light that moves. And so we baptize people who are making a commitment to not just say, oh yeah, I've seen the light, I admire it, I know these truths. No, I want to follow this light. Didn't Jesus say the most extraordinary things at the most amazing and appropriate times? Track with me. This is during the Feast of Booths. When God's light to rescue his people is being symbolically remembered. He's in the temple treasury, not in a private place. He's very public. It's packed with people. There could perhaps be thousands of candles lit in this courtyard. Jerusalem is glowing on the hill. And as the feast comes to a close and the lights have gone out, suddenly Jesus takes the stage and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Implying that the whole Old Testament festival, with its symbolic meaning, what it was all about in the past and what it's looking forward to in the future, has its focus in Him. That's the claim. It might be easier to understand how just stupendous this claim is if we brought it into our own day and age. Imagine that we just got done celebrating the 4th of July. It's our national holiday. It's a day that we celebrate our independence and our freedom. It's the big one for us Americans, okay? And imagine that President Joe Biden walks out of the White House on the 4th of July and says this, liberation and freedom is to be found in me and me alone. Whoever follows me will walk in liberation and be free. That would cause a stir, <laughs> right? Any president, if you're our guest here, we're not picking on, this could be said about President Trump, 
President Obama. It could have been said about any of them. But if they walk out on the 4th of July and say, all of this national significance and what you're remembering and what you value and what you long for, all of your liberation and freedom is really bound up in me. You would just be like, what? And in fact, it's that kind of statement that causes a stir. Jesus is forcing you to judge him. He's forcing you to come to an opinion about him. And he is not making it really easy for you because you really only have two options. You can have him and have light in life, or you don't have him and you remain in the dark, not living but dying. For to cut yourself off from the light is to cut yourself off from life. And he leaves you very little room. Accept him or reject him. Let's pick up the account in verse 13 and see how the people respond. Here is the challenge. In response to Jesus saying that he is the light of the world, the Jews say, you are bearing witness about yourself, verse 13, and your testimony is not true. Essentially, they're saying, says who? You say? You say that about yourself? That doesn't count. You can't testify about yourself. Right? They are challenging him on his claim. And we get that, don't we? Right? When you're doing a job interview, you don't tell that person, you know what, hey, write yourself a character reference for me. I show up to work, I'm the best worker, I, I, I. I mean, no, you, you say, I want a third party to tell me about who you are. I want some references. Jesus, it's not fair that you are just saying that you are the light of the world. Who says? Says you? So in verses 13 through 30, you can see that there is a challenge that's going to go on between the Pharisees and Jesus, okay? Just track with me, kind of look at the verses carefully. Verse 13, they question him, says who? Verse 14, Jesus answers. They speak, verse 19, then Jesus replies in verse 21. Verse 22, the Jews reply. Verse 25, they said to him, and Jesus says to them. Throughout this section is a back and a forth. It is a debate, a discussion, evidence, argument, counter-argument, and it's all about his origin and his mission. Here's the structure of the text. His origin, verses 14 through 20. His mission, verses 21 through 30. They want to challenge him because they are in the dark about where he's from and where he's going, his origin and his destiny. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered them, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. Jesus is saying, that, You know what? I have the right to make this claim. He says, I am the light of the world. And because he knows where he comes from and where he is going, he can actually say that. That fits in all the way back in John chapter 1. We call that the prologue. In John 1, here are these verses, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In Jesus, we're not dealing with some kind of human philosopher, some kind of religious guru. In Jesus, we're dealing with God himself who has broken into this world order. So he can say, I am from above. I am not of this world. 
Now, Jesus doesn't only just point to his origin. He also points to his mission as a way to validate that he is who he said he is. But once again, the Jews are in the dark about who he is and why he's here. They're in the dark about his mission. And his mission is to rescue you from the judgment of God. What is the gospel? What does the gospel do for you? What are you saved from? Christians, non-Christians, what you are ultimately saved from is the wrath of God. You are saved from God himself. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What Jesus says, you must believe the one that he claims to be. Literally, you must believe that I am he. Then look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am he. When Jesus talks about being lifted up, we've heard this before in John 3. Jesus being lifted up is him going to the cross. He's being lifted up. So John 3, 14 says this, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's what we know about lifted up. But what is this whole phrase, I am he, all about? We've heard it several times in our service. You heard it in a call to worship in Isaiah 43. God declares himself to be, I am he. I just want you to listen to a couple verses again from Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. We go over to verse 25 in Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. The cross is the ultimate demonstration that this Jesus is that God. Jesus is actually saying the whole passage of Isaiah where God calls himself, I am he. Now Christ takes on that name and says, you must believe I am he. We see that all the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And it is the cross that demonstrates that this Jesus is that God in the flesh. Friends, who but God would undertake such a mission to save sinners? Who but God in the flesh would offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners? Who but the God-man could demonstrate both the justice of God and the mercy of God all at the same time? If you're new to understanding what Christianity is all about and what's actually happening on the cross, what's happening on the cross is that Jesus as man is absorbing all of the punishment that God would pour out for our sins. But because he's also fully God, he can pay for those sins and open up a way for you to experience all the goodness of God by his grace. And so on the cross, the darkness of our rebellion is being lifted and the piercing light of God's goodness is, lights up your life. So here, this great claim. This is what Christ is saying. Look at my origin. Look at my mission. You can see all that clearly when you look at the cross. Throughout this passage, 
You don't know where I'm coming from. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know why I'm here. But then it says at the very end, but then you will know I am he. When will you know? When you see me lifted up on the cross. You, You don't know anything about me where I'm from and where I'm going. You don't know who I am and why I'm here. But when you look at the cross, then you will know I am he. You want to know my, about my origin? You want to know about my destiny? You want to know about my mission? Look at the cross. Here's his claim for your life. Follow Jesus, and you can know where you are from and where you are going. Follow Jesus, and you can know who you are and why you're here. Follow Jesus, and you can know where you're going and who will meet you there. That's the offer of salvation. The evidence for all of these chapters has been compelling, but the Jews are still in the dark. Why can't they see the light of Jesus? Why can't they understand the truth that he is telling them? Well, it is because of their unbelief. And in their unbelief, they are blind, and that blindness leads them to be unable to perceive. They just ask repeated questions, question after question after question, all exposing and underscoring that they are just not getting it. Track with me. When Jesus says in verse 18, his father sent him and bears witness with him. Well, in verse 19, they mock him and say, where's your father? Maybe referring to Joseph there. In verse 21, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They are blind to what that says about them. They twist the truth into something uh, that it might say about Jesus. So in verse 22, are you going to go kill yourself? When Jesus says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, they respond in verse 25, who are you? In other words, who do you think you are? Verse 27, they did not understand. And the story of the Jewish people is they are blinded and they continue to look for another Messiah. And they would go on looking for another Messiah that has never come because he already has. My non-Christian friend, you might think that your unbelief is quite reasonable, that your unbelief is quite rational. You might think that your unbelief is neutral. But what if it is just blind prejudice? Since chapter 1, Jesus has been providing evidence after evidence after evidence, 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 evidence. And he's going to try to persuade the Jews all the way up through chapter 10. He really stops trying to persuade people at chapter 11 when Lazarus is raised from the dead. He knows that raising Lazarus from the dead is going to usher in his own death. In chapter 12 on, he only really talks to his disciples because the world has rejected it. He has come to his own. And his own have rejected him because his own have loved the darkness rather than the light. Every time that he provides evidence, their reason for why they don't believe shifts. Have you ever noticed that with people? Hey, I have an objection about Jesus. You give them evidence. And the next thing you know, it's a different reason. Then it's a different reason. This is a different reason. This is a different reason. And you provide evidence, 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 evidence. And the reason for why they don't believe continues to shift. Remember, it's up at this point that we begin to see in John's gospel that unbelief is not just the absence of something. It really is the presence of something. Unbelief is not just a lack of faith because you lack evidence. Unbelief prevails over evidence. 
Unbelief is never satisfied with the evidence. Unbelief seizes the truth, grasps it roughly, swallows it up, and silences its voice. My non-Christian friend, please do not flatter yourself in thinking that your only problem is lack of evidence. Don't even think that that's your main problem. Think of your human heart like a kid at a birthday party. Parents, here we are. I know we're kind of the slowed down here in the service and maybe my, my tone has kind of lulled you to sleep. But if you've been a parent for any length of time, you know what happens when kids have birthday parties. They get excited. They know the day is coming. They are filled with anticipation. They can't wait for all of their friends to get there. The house is decorated. Presents are going to be had. And the day comes. Everyone comes in. Everyone's happy. But then something happens. Next thing you know, your kid runs out of the room, finds their bedroom, slams the door, and starts crying. As a parent, you analyze the situation. You realize it's a little embarrassing that the birthday kid is not there celebrating with all of his friends or her friends. You go upstairs to their room in which you sit down sympathetically and you say, what's wrong? Everyone's waiting for you. They're all here because it's your birthday. They, they want to see you. And your kid through the sobs says, I don't want a party. I hate that cake. And all the presents are stupid. And what you've realized is, reasoning doesn't work. <laughs> evidence, 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 evidence. And reasoning doesn't work. What is at the root of this is this. That kid is having a heart problem. And what the heart problem is this. It's not going my way. Therefore, I'm going to convince myself that I don't want it and I hate it all. And it's the same thing in the first century with the Jews. They have been waiting for their Messiah to come for years, filled with anticipation and excitement of the coming of that great light to dawn on them. And then he comes, and something goes wrong. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations of the cultural norms. He doesn't validate their religious observance that they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. No, he says, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the sinners. And they go running away, crying, convincing themselves with evidence, 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 evidence that they did not want this Messiah, because they already know what this Messiah was supposed to be. My non-Christian friend, you might be telling yourself that your unbelief is because of this reason or that reason or this reason or that reason, but there is a reason underneath all of your reasons. The reason why you don't want Jesus to be who he said he is is because you don't want to follow him. Let me boil it down for you. The real reason behind all of our unbelief, then and today, it's very simple. It's the fact that you still want to be in charge. It's not a plausibility problem. It's a power problem. We respond to Jesus' claims and what it says about our condition with the same question they did. Who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are, seeing that you're the light of the world? You know what that says about me? I'm walking in darkness. You think I don't see the light? You don't think I know how to make sense of my life? You don't think I'm competent to decide what is good for me, right and wrong? 
We don't like what his claims have to say about us. You're saying that unless I believe in you, I'll die in my sins? Us? Sinners? <coughs> Who do you think you are? It's actually the question that he wants you to ask. What is your opinion of Jesus? Friends, if you're skeptical of Jesus today, here's the cure. Admit that we are all blinded by bias. We're all blinded by bias. If you were to judge a court case, and you were the judge, and you found out that the group that you were evaluating what to do in the sentence was about a company that you own stock in, and that if you sentenced them as guilty, that you would go bankrupt, would you be allowed to be the judge? No. When you look at the Bible, and you try to decide, is the Bible true or false? Realize that there is not a place for you to stand that's neutral, that at arm's length you can rationally just discuss and dialogue about who Jesus is. Because whatever he says about himself has direct bearing on you. And so it's not just is it true or false, it's how is this going to make me change my life? Because if he's the light of the world, I can't be my own light. I have to give up my own self-determination of what I think is going to make me happy. Now I have to follow what he says? Admit your bias. Admit that we are unable to objectively stand and investigate and evaluate God's claims. And I would encourage you to adapt your standard of evaluation to his. Second, ask him to give you spiritual eyes to see the truth. God is the difference. We're going to see that in John 9. But Jesus comes to those that are blind, those that are willing to admit they are blind, those that know they are blind, and he comes to those and he's willing to make them see. Just like in John chapter 7, anyone who is thirsty can come to him for water. The images change, but it's the same point. Those that come to him that know that they can't see, that they are blind, he gives them sight. So ask God. He makes all the difference. God, help me to see. Make me be willing to follow your word if it is true. If that's your disposition, then he will lead you in truth and he will lead you in light. This message isn't just for Christians. Oh, I'm sorry, for non-Christians. This message is also for Christians. Blindness and unbelief can still plague us even after we're saved. Christians, it is your duty and your privilege to believe and to continue to believe, to continue to strive to see Jesus for all that he is. Are, are you putting in the effort to continue to try to catch a glimpse of Jesus through his word and with his people? It is in his word that we hear his claims, but it's through his people that we see those claims lived out and demonstrated. And it will help you walk by faith, not by sight on this world. One day you won't need your faith. But right now we all see kind of blurry and imperfect. And we need the telescope of the gospel. We need to look through the cross and see the light of who he is in all of his glory. And that will help calm our troubled and weary and anxious souls. Think of many that are struggling with health and sickness. 
And it's when we look through the cross, the telescope of the cross, and we see things that are way far off, they get brought near. We see God's wisdom in the cross. We see God's love in the cross, God's grace in the cross. And if He's willing to do all that for us, then will He not also take care of my daily needs? Because we doubt. We have temptations. We struggle. And so we need to continue to strive in our faith to see him in all of his glory and to see Christ lifted up. It's through our sight of him through the cross that our hearts get warm and our fears are, are scattered and all of our temptations and our doubting souls are comforted in his life. Why would we not say, God, I don't see clearly. See, he's not scandalized when we admit that we can't see. He's gracious and wants to help those that are struggling to see. All we have to do is just ask of him. Would you stand with me and we'll sing our closing song.